Even if you're a lawyer and you're not a software developer, if you're the lawyer who understands how the software developer works, you're way better off than if you're just a lawyer who has tunnel vision on your own area. So, uh, you know, I compare it to a relay race, right? So uh, if you look at an Olympic relay, it's not just about who can run the fastest, it's about which team can get the handoffs of that baton done effectively. And what happens in these teams is if you're the person who's good at the handoff, you're a lot more valuable than if you're just somebody who runs fast. I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about technology and innovation in the practice of law. Today's episode, we're talking to senior New York Times economics correspondent Neil Irwin about his book, How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World, The Definitive Guide to Adapting and Succeeding in High-Performance Careers. I'm really excited about this episode's guest. It's New York Times senior economics correspondent Neil Irwin. Neil and I recently met at the New York Times Washington, D.C. office, just a couple blocks away from the White House. You might ask, what does an economics reporter have to do with a podcast on legal tech and innovation? Well, let me tell you. Neil wrote a book called How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World, The Definitive Guide to Adapting and Succeeding in High-Performance Careers. The book is a guide for people looking to succeed in an economy driven by tech, gig-based jobs, and it is generally just about the changing nature of what it means to work in the 21st century. To write his book, Neil talked to employees from several different companies to figure out what it takes to have a successful career nowadays. He figured out that those that succeed are flexible, they gain skills outside of their specific occupation, they understand the economics and the business behind their organizations and how their jobs fit in, and he also figured out that the most successful employees nowadays are able to communicate effectively with others outside of their areas of expertise. He calls those people glue people. As Neil explains in his book, he was somewhat motivated to write it because his industry, the newspaper industry, was radically changed by technology, so much that many newspapers simply don't exist anymore and have been supplanted by internet sites and social media. As a result, the way reporters do their work has also radically changed. Maybe not as radical, but in some respects, the legal industry is facing the changes that newspaper did a few years ago. Tech and automation are changing the way lawyers work and requiring law firms and in-house legal departments to adapt or perish. As I was reading Neil's book, I couldn't help but keep drawing parallels between the stuff he was writing about and the case studies he detailed and what was happening in the legal industry. So I was excited to get him on the podcast so we could go a little bit deeper into what he found out. To kick off our conversation, I asked Neil to give me his elevator pitch and give me a summary of all the things that he figured out in writing the book. So the world economy has changed in important ways. The business environment has changed in big ways. Uh, I believe this has radical implications for how each of us as individuals should think about the way we navigate a successful career. Uh, you know, we all want to have a good job, rewarding, fulfilling, lucrative. I think the way the economy is shifting necessitates big changes in how we think. What does that mean? It means uh, adapting and being the type of person who can really thrive in the large, complex organizations that dominate the modern economy. It means being a glue person, which we can talk about later, but uh, is... Uh, the kind of person who can work on a team, pull together different types of technological expertise, make good products, uh, make successful teams happen. I think these and more are, are the, the keys to, to having that successful career. And uh, I think these are lessons we can all apply as we navigate the, the modern corporate world. And you're an economics writer, and obviously there's a lot in your book that do relate to economics ultimately, but it's a book about how to be a very successful employee in the modern age. What was it that inspired you to write the book? 
So as you say, I'm an economics writer. I spend all my time worrying about kind of big picture trends around employment and GDP and productivity and all these types of things. But what I've realized over the years, as I spoke to friends, colleagues, sources, even dealing with my own career in the media industry, is that the things I write about in my day job around how the big picture economic trends are changing, the flip side of those is these massive changes in what it means to have a good career. Things like the rise of superstar firms and these you know large technologically complex companies that dominate the modern economy, things like uh, the changing nature of work and what it means to have a job, the contracting economy. These are all things that, that we have to understand and navigate to really have that fulfilling career we all want. And uh, it's two sides of the same coin. And this is based on a study you did. Tell us a little bit about the study, how you went about it, how you identified the companies you wanted to be involved in the study. I, you know, I obviously started with reading a lot of uh, of research from you know from economists, from academics, from business school professors, from consultants, talked to a lot of people in that world. But ultimately, what I wanted to do is be on the ground of, of these big organizations, big companies, and understand how they work. And so I did, I essentially approached a bunch of companies, some of the big household names you know, it's you know Microsoft and General Electric and Walmart, some of them less familiar, some of them more uh, more obscure, and asked two basic questions. I said, what does it take to have a successful career in this organization in the 21st century? And can I talk to some of the people who are doing that? And fortunately, a lot of these companies let me come and visit and, and spend time on the ground interviewing with some of these executives who are really uh, living up to these uh, ideas that, that I think the research shows are valuable. I turn those people into case studies, and that forms the core of this book. The companies you talked to were on the gamut. There was restaurants in New York. There was uh, companies involved in the movie industry. You mentioned Microsoft. Did you have any company in mind or any particular type of company in mind when you set out to do this? So it's funny. So I did want to make sure I hit different industries. Um, you know, I really do think there's a commonality among the types of organizations that are dominant in the modern economy that have a lot in common with each other, even across fields. So, you know, I went to Goldman Sachs, for example, and Goldman Sachs, you think of it as a big bank and that's, you know, what it is. But, you know, you go to Goldman Sachs in 2019, you know, I showed up in a gray suit and ready to do my interview with a banker. You know, it turns out it looks a lot more like a tech company now. And there's more people in jeans. There's more whiteboards with flowcharts written on the walls. You know, it actually has a lot in common with how things work in Silicon Valley. It's true in retail. It's true in, uh, you know, all kinds of fields. You know, I think there are some commonalities in what it takes to be successful, what it takes to do well at these types of organizations that are, uh, you know, again, have a lot in common with each other. And you, you mentioned legal in a couple spots in the book. One, an area near near to my heart, automation of, of analysis of documents. Did you speak to anybody in the legal realm at all, or how did those quips in the book end up there? Yeah, I did. I spent some time with some uh, recruiters in the legal industry, and uh, uh, you know, in a lot of the kind of more casual conversations I've had with uh, with people over the years, that includes a lot of lawyers. I'm I based in Washington D.C., where uh, every uh, you know every other person on the sidewalk is a is a lawyer. So it's kind of a world I've been steeped in and have some familiarity with. And, and I think all of what I'm talking about really does apply in that sphere as well. And we can go into some of the details. But yeah, the idea that this is an industry that has a long tradition and, and has worked a certain way for you know centuries, arguably, uh, certainly decades, and that that's shifting with the rise of digital technology, with new economic models in the legal business, um, with you know new demands on what it takes to be a successful lawyer, uh, whether that's you know at a law firm or as an in-house counsel somewhere, I think there's some really important lessons there that apply to lawyers just as much as they do finance people or software engineers or marketing people. And uh, so I think that's a really important idea. One of the key points in Neil's book is that some of the people who are having the most success in the companies he looked into are glue people. He describes glue people as those who can bridge the gap between different types of expertise. However, Neil also figured out there's good types of glue people and bad types of glue people. What I 
found over and over again is the kind of atomic unit of a, of a modern organization are teams that involve people across different types of functions. Um, you know, in, in the media business where I am, that can mean, you know, traditional writers and editors, plus graphic design people, plus software engineers, plus uh, product managers and business side people, video people, audio people. They have to get together in a room, uh, you know, in that conference room, trying to figure out how to make a great product. And I think, you know, lawyers often have to be one of those people in that room, you know, uh, whether it's in my industry or any other. And what differentiates people who are really effective, really have, uh, you know, limitless potential in these types of organizations is they can work with people who have different technical skills from their own, but they can kind of cut across these different areas and understand, even if you're a lawyer and you're not a software developer, if you're the lawyer who understands how the software developer works, you're way better off than if you're just a lawyer who has tunnel vision on your own area. So, uh, you know, I compare it to a relay race, right? So uh, if you look at an Olympic relay, it's not just about who can run the fastest. It's about which team can get the handoffs of that baton done effectively. And what happens in these teams is if you're the person who's good at the handoff, you're a lot more valuable than if you're just somebody who runs fast. In the book, you mentioned the best type of glue person is Pareto Optimal. Uh, Pareto is the guy that often credited with the 80-20 rule, but this is a little different. The Pareto Optimal rule is a little different. What is that? It's funny. I came up with this notion of a glue person. I was in New Zealand with a, a chief information officer of a digital effects studio. She told me about the idea of glue people. That's what we need. That's the that's who is successful. And I uh, I went back and I did this you know very elaborate, very sophisticated research technique of uh, typing glue person to Google.com. Uh, it turns out that term's been out there before. And uh, Eric Schmidt, who's the former CEO of Google, uh, has used that as a term for a bad thing, right? That Google had too many glue people. It had too many of these people, you know, too many people with these traits. And I was so confused. I was like, you know, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why would that be a bad thing? And so I called up a guy named Laszlo Bach, who is, uh, used to run uh, human resources at Google during that era. I said, what is Eric Schmidt talking about? I hear all of what, you know, cross-functional teams working well with others, uh, making great products. What's wrong with glue people? And it became clear that we were talking about different things, right? Eric Schmidt, when he's talking about bad glue people, he's talking about people who gum up the works, people who get on a group and just stand in the way of progress, who want to add process and layers of paperwork. That's the bad kind of glue person. The good kind propels things forward, understands how to communicate with different people with different skills, and actually makes the whole greater than the sum of its parts. So what's the difference? I think that person, back to this idea of being Pareto optimal, is somebody who is on kind of this efficient frontier where they're uh, as good at multiple possible things as possible without being worse at the others. I know that sounds weird, but you know there are different places on that frontier. If you're, uh, you know, if you're a lawyer who works in a biotech company, for example, you're not a scientist. You're not doing the biomedical research, but you need to be a lawyer who understands enough biomedical research that you can have a good conversation with the scientists and understand what they're doing, understand what IP you're trying to patent or you know whatever the, the situation is. Uh, similarly, on the other extreme, that scientist doesn't need to be a lawyer, but they need to know enough about the intellectual property system, patent law, to understand how you work. And uh, then there can be managers who are kind of in between, who know they're not a lawyer, they're not a scientist, but they understand enough about the interlocking parts that they can run a team, try and get a drug you know, uh, delivered to market. So I think being Pareto optimal means being somewhere on that line. You can't be a better lawyer without being a worse scientist, you can't be a better scientist without being a worse lawyer. And I think that's a that's what we should all strive for. Whatever our organization is, there's always multiple things that you need to know something about, and you want to make sure that you uh, are as good as you can possibly be on those multiple frontiers. And if I understood your point correctly in the book, to become Pareto Optimal, one of the things that helps is to have a very 
uh, work experience, meaning different positions and, and exposure to different types of jobs and tasks, but also be flexible. Yeah. So I think what often happens is you start in a job and you're doing well at it. And so you just keep doing it more and more and you try and ascend and get to a slightly higher level and get a promotion and um, get a raise and, and stay on that track you're on. And that can be that can be fine. But I think in addition to thinking of the kind of upward movement, you have to think about lateral movement and understand uh, and seek out ways that you can expand the breadth of your understanding of your organization, your field, apart from whatever you try to do to ascend and rise higher. It's kind of the, a career lattice as opposed to a career ladder, where lateral moves, even slight downward moves, can be really valuable if they're giving you the opportunity to stretch, broaden your horizons, that then enable to, to you know, propel upward uh, later in your career. I think even you said it might be worth to take a pay cut to go somewhere on this lattice, if, or maybe not a demotion per se, but a... It can be. Uh, it absolutely can be. And I think, you know, being thoughtful about it, you don't want to take a pay cut or take a demotion lightly, but if you can make a lateral or slight downward move in a way where you really are gaining some skill or experience that's going to be super valuable in the future, that can be really valuable. I've known, I mean, lawyers who move over to, say, investment banking and, and finance, and sometimes that's not, uh, that's at best a lateral move. That can even be a downward move because they're not as experienced. But if that lays the groundwork, you know, if you can then in 10 or 20 years, be that person with a strong legal background, strong finance background, you're in position for some really impressive jobs and do some really cool stuff that you might not if you don't take that risk early on. Okay, to be a glue person, you need to be flexible and you need to be exposed to various types of jobs and work experiences. But as I pointed out to Neil, in law, that's easier said than done because specialization is still very important. Neil countered with an interesting point and another key observation from his book, that successful employees in this day and age Regardless of their position, they understand the business aspects of their role and how it fits into the business success of the company. So it's not that lawyers shouldn't specialize, but if they really want to be successful, they need to do more than just sit in the office and work on what they know best. They need to really learn the business dynamics of the company or law firm that they work for and how they can improve those dynamics. Part of why companies go to a law firm as opposed to do something in-house is because they want that really deep expertise, right? If, if you're doing a bet-the-company merger, if you're doing, you know, have some complex regulatory thing that is really, you know, tremendous amounts of money at stake, you want people you know, to do that all day long. And that's why you're, you know, that's why you're paying $1,000 an hour for a partner. That's that's why the numbers are what they are. But I think there are different types of kind of cross-functional specialization, right? It's not just that, suppose you end up going the kind of intellectual property track within a, within a big firm. You know, it's not that uh, you're necessarily going to, uh, you know, especially the more senior you get, you're too valuable doing that to do things that are radically different and, and just cut across, oh, suddenly I'm going to become a restructuring lawyer. Some, suddenly I'm going to become a, a trial lawyer. You know, these are things that aren't necessarily, uh, you can't just jump around that easily. I think you can really make sure that as you ascend and as you're uh, working on becoming a better and better IP lawyer, to use this example, you're also understanding the interlocking parts of the law firm business, right? Every law firm is a business. It's not just a bunch of professionals who get together and practice law. So understanding the economics of how your firm works, what drives value, what clients are most valuable, how you cultivate those relationships can be a way to make sure that you're positioning yourself on whatever kinds of deals, what kind of transactions, what kinds of clients are, you know, going to be the things that really propel your career forward, and that you're, you know, cultivating relationships with the, uh, you know, with the clients, with executives at the client, uh, who might be the the, the pathway toward, uh, you know, you being a really valuable eventually partner and, and and have a long career there. It's slightly a different path than if your aspiration is to go in house somewhere and be more part of a business unit somewhere. 
We're going to step away from our conversation with Neil just for a second because I wanted to let you know that for every episode of Technically Legal, there's a dedicated episode page at tlpodcast.com. On these episode pages, there's links and other information relating to the stuff that our guests talk about. For instance, on Neil's episode page, there's a link to his website, his New York Times bio, and information about how to buy his book, How to Win. Also, if you want to get a hold of me or learn more about what my company, Percipient, does, you can find me on LinkedIn. Or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Let's get back to our talk with Neil. As I noted at the top of the podcast, Neil's book is entitled How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. What does he mean by winner-take-all world? What he means is that nowadays, so many industries are dominated by just a few players. Think about Google for search or Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the big social media giants. Or think about Apple and Microsoft. The legal industry also has winner-take-all aspects about it. Think about the consolidation at the top end of the AMLAW 200, where the big firms keep getting bigger. Yeah, so we're seeing on the winner-take-all side a lot of industries where uh, the industry is more and more dominated by a handful of very large players. And I think that's true for law, too, at the top end. No question. Every industry, the details vary, but often there's some technological basis for this. Often there's some competitive basis. You know, the ability to be a law firm that says, you know, we have an office in every major city in the world. Um, you know, if you, whatever your special, you know, if you're a company that you came to us for to work on a merger and suddenly you need work on IP, you need work on, uh, you know, litigation, we have the people in-house to help you do that. You know, that has advantages that, that kind of results in this consolidation. Um, and part of that, you know, that's a separate question, you know, that antitrust authorities have allowed this consolidation in a lot of businesses. My argument is that there are elements to succeeding in those types of organizations that we all need to kind of understand and and do well in. And I think that's what we've been talking about, this blue person, Pareto Optimal, being this person. You know, I I think a central idea here is, you know, it used to be once upon a time, you didn't have to worry too much if you were a low-level, mid-level employee about the overall strategy of your organization. You could let the CEO worry about that. And now more and more, to have that long, thriving career, you have to be able to see around the corner. You have to understand the competitive constraints that you're organization is under, what its strategy is. It it enables you to see, okay, where is technology going? Where are the business opportunities of the future? Where does the future revenue come from? How can I drive that technological change, not be a victim of that technological change? You just mentioned that we're talking about the law firm. You said, you know, maybe it's not specializing, looking at other types of work, but looking at other areas of the law firm and how the business works. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even in early stages, so in your, that first two, three years, you still have some variability, some flexibility of what practice you go into, uh, you know, looking around the corner, obviously you have to reflect what your ambitions are, what partner you want to work with, uh, you know, what you're good at. But you can also look around the corner and say, okay, what's the real growth opportunity for this law firm? Where do I think there's going to be a lot of billings in the future? And, you know, a lot of people are going to make partner. A lot of people are going to get those promotions. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I've known people, I've had friends who were doing perfectly well at one of the big law firms in a certain specialty and that specialty goes out of favor and, and is there's less demand for it. And they, you know, have to peel off and are no longer on the partner track just because there's not the business there. But, you know, trying to look around the corner is the, is, is the real goal. And I think it, looking around the corner in the book, you didn't mention law per se, but you said if you want to figure out where your industry is going, is look at employment listings for competitors and the, the, the skills they're looking for, right? Yeah, I think this is a nice idea. So even if your own company is, it's not clear that it's kind of one of the, the huge superstar firms of, of your industry, look at the job listings of the companies that are. So I use in the book the example of, uh, you know, if you work at General Motors in the auto business, you may not believe Tesla is going to have a long-term future. You may not want to work at Tesla, but you can look at Tesla's job listings and maybe get a good sense of what types of skills the automakers of the future are going to be looking for and work on developing, cultivating those capabilities today. 
One of the main takeaways from Neil's book, and one of its main underlying themes, is that one of the main drivers changing the economy is automation. It's changing the way we do our work, and it's also changing the jobs that are out there nowadays. In the end, Neil's suggestion is that to succeed in an automation economy is to find a job that can't be automated or figure out how to train the robots. Law is obviously not immune to automation, and this is a theme we've talked about many times in this podcast. So this is a point lawyers should definitely take note of in Neil's book. I have no doubt in the world there will continue to be lawyers uh, a long time into the future. That's not a job that's going away, but I think there are certain types of law and certain types of practices that look a lot less sunny, right? If your job is to look over contracts and look for, you know, vague language or, or problematic language, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think computers are getting better and better at. You know, even things as simple at the kind of more consumer level, you know, wills and 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 kind of basic you know, real estate work, that type of thing. A lot of that you can get the forms online, you know, you maybe don't need to be paying somebody a lot of money to do that type of work for you. So, you know, these are areas where, you know, you kind of want to position yourself to, to end up at a, at a higher grade of the industry, a higher level of sophistication. Uh, you know, if you think a computer might be able to do your job in five or 10 years, you need to be developing different skills. So as you say, there, I think there's a fork in the road. There are things that will never be automated. That would include things, you know, trial laws. As long as, as, long as we have our current judicial system, there will be jobs for people who can uh, persuade a jury of the rightness of their cause. And then there's things uh, that are just higher grade levels uh, where you're driving the automation. So, you know, if you're working with software developers to automate those processes, to essentially use that technology to make yourself more effective. Um, that can be a really powerful thing, and that can be a great opportunity. So I think you have to ask yourself that question. Is my role something that either I can be driving technological change, or is it something that uh, will never be automated out of existence? And if you're not in one of those, find a way to be in one of those. It's interesting because a lot of law firms and, and legal departments and corporations are hiring people, either you know, chief you know, innovation officers, things of that nature, where they're, they're a lot of times lawyers, or it could be like legal operations people, sometimes lawyers, sometimes business people, and their whole job is to figure out how to bring innovation to the law firm, how to do the work more efficiently. But I think a lot of times there's lip service to that. They hire the people. The people become frustrated because they can't convince the partners and the people running the law firm to actually adopt some of these ideas. So my question to you is... Law is still very archaic. I think it's not unlike newspapers were not too long ago. What happens to legal if they don't, if the powers that be at this point don't recognize they've got to change the way they hire, change the type of people they hire, and change the way they do business? I think it's a, it's a real risk. And I think there's always this threat of innovation from below, right? And you, and you are seeing this in the legal business. You're seeing s smaller startups um, you know, trying to automate different processes, you know, different elements of, of legal work. And if the big guys who have the resources have the, you know, really high-grade legal talent, if they don't automate some of this stuff, these small upstarts will. I don't want to prejudge who's going to win in these battles. I think you'll often, you know, a typical model you see in other industries, you see this in finance, right, where there's fintech startups and there's big banks. Big banks are regulated, they have reputational risk, but they also have a lot of capital, they have a lot of capabilities, uh, they have a lot of good people. I think it's not always obvious how it's going to shake out, uh, very similar dynamic in the legal industry. And I think there's interesting opportunities too. You know, if, look, I know a lot of lawyers at big firms who are really burned out on, on you know, billable hours and, and working the way they are. That actually creates interesting opportunities to go into the startup sector and, and work on trying to, instead of have a, you know, a, an associate who's a you know, third year out of law school trudging away you know, for 80 hours a week, instead find a way to automate some of those processes that can actually be more interesting work. 
And that, that's interesting. So it's looking at it differently. Talk about earlier the, the glue people or the people who have varied experience. So maybe legal becomes the beginning of that experience. You start with legal and then you move somewhere else to the tech company to, to get in product or whatever. So yeah, I mean, it's a tough transition. And I don't want to downplay how tough that transition is. If you're, you know, look, the number of, of people with a law degree who are, you know, three, four years at a firm who are 28, 30 years old, who are kind of at the stage where they want to go into a different field. You know, it's not always easy to go straight from that into the commercial sector and and doing something completely different. Um, so I, again, I'm not trying to downplay that and suggest it's easy, but that is a way to stretch oneself and, and become that type of worker who can really be valuable. You know, you think about the number of... Um, general counsels and the role general counsels play in a lot of organizations, they're often not just the, you know, the man or woman who is there in case you get sued or looks over a contract and makes sure it looks clean. They're often playing very crucial strategic roles in these modern organizations. And so if you're the person who understands both the business needs of how that organization works and has a strong legal training, has maybe worked in a big firm for, for X years, that can be a really valuable thing. Whether that leads to a GC title or not, well, you know, that can be other things. You know, there are plenty of people who are, uh, you know, a COO who actually have a law degree. Uh, I think there are ways that these skills that you learn in law are, are applicable in a lot of areas. So going back to the winner-take-all types of companies, I think Google's a classic example of this. You know, you and I probably are not going to start a company to do search and, and rival Google. I mean, Google pretty much controls that. Um, we talked about how for certain high-end work, like big M&A deals, big pieces of litigation, high, high IP work, the top AML, 25, they're, they're getting that. The, the biggest law firms are consolidating and getting bigger, and they're getting that business. But the vast majority of legal work is still smaller lawyers, smaller law firms, smaller attorneys. The world's changing for them too. So I think in the book you said, look, you may not get a job at Google. It's hard to get a job at Google, but you get a job at another tech company. It's not as glamorous. It's not, a, not as good. But so let's say you, you don't work at Kirkland and Ellis or one of the bigger firms. What do you tell a person at a mid-sized law firm or a smaller law firm about how to adapt their skills and how to make themselves successful as the economy changes? Again, to use the kind of winner-take-all terminology, it's not as if everybody is going to work at the Google of their industry, the Goldman Sachs of their industry. Um, there are a lot of opportunities outside of that. I think you just have to be realistic about the trade-offs you're making, right? You know, if you're at at a you know smaller firm, smaller city, um, you need to make sure you're carving out a niche that really matches what your capabilities are and what you're going to be rewarded for, right? If it's you know if it's a bet the company litigation for a Fortune 100 company, they don't want to go to some uh, smaller firm that, you know, has a fine track record. They want these really big guys. If it's something about, um, you know, outsourcing some of their, uh, you know, all their dealing with all their HR litigation, for example, that's a different story, right? If it's more kind of routine business stuff, they're more likely to actually want the advantage they can get from a lower cost structure, often outside of the major cities, uh, often, you know, just because of the cost of living and everything else, you can get a much more reasonable deal. So I think you want to make sure that you're at a firm where the strategy is aligned with kind of how that organization fits into the legal marketplace and you don't have expectations that are out of whack. So as I wrapped up my conversation with Neil, I asked him at the end of the day, was his assessment of the plight of the modern worker dark and gloomy or were these changes to the economy and the way people do their work actually positives for career growth and advancement? This is a different environment from what our parents lived in when they were engaging in their own careers. And it is harder. You have more choices to make. You have uh, less certainty. You have, you know, a wider range of things that can happen. Uh, but I compared a little bit to, to sailing. So if, 
if you don't really know how to sail and you take a boat out on a nice sunny, you know, day with, with light wind, you're probably going to be fine, right? You can kind of drift around and get back to your dock and, and everything's going to be okay. If you go out on a windy day with big currents, stormy, you have to know what you're doing, right? Things are going to be a little more complicated and you're going to be batted around by those winds and those currents. And, you know, the idea of getting back safely, it's, it takes a lot more knowledge and a lot more care in the decisions you make. Uh, I think something similar is going on with with careers. You know, we can't control the economic forces that that shape the world we're working in. We can't control those winds and those currents. Uh, we can understand them and study them and make sure that we understand uh, what those forces are, how they affect our own career path, and adapt accordingly. And while it's harder and it takes more kind of decision-making and, and research and hopefully reading books like mine, it also can be a lot more fun. And I think a lot of sailors actually enjoy it more when there's high winds and a lot more uh, risk out there. So I think um, we're all sailors. We're all trying to understand those winds and currents. And if you get it right, it can uh, it really can be a lot of fun. Neil, I appreciate your time. The book is How to Win in a Winner-Take-All World. I will put a link on the episode page for this for people to get to the book if they want to buy it and read it. But where can they find it? Uh, every bookstore, whatever your favorite bookstore is, whether it's local or Amazon or wherever you go. And if they want to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? My website's neilirwin.com, N-E-I-L-I-R-W-I-N.com. Email address is on there, neil at neilirwin.com. Well, that's it for this edition of Technically Legal. We appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Spotify, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, etc., etc. If you like us enough, I hope you leave us a good review. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's cmain at percipient.co. And until next time, we appreciate you listening. This has been Technically Legal.